en hartelike goeie morgen, welkom by ons program Skriftierlik, waar ons wekelijk saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, jy woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na jy woord, en Psalm 119, 105 sê, jy woord is een lamp vir my voete en een licht vir my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraak laat, om die waarheid te vind en licht te schijn op die vraag uit die skrifte, waarmee ek en jy mondtik kan worstel nie. Krij dus gauw jou Bijbel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skriftierlik. As easy as the touch of a button, the message of life on 657 AM. Abosheni, Mulweni, Dumilang, Sanbunani, good morning, Mora. What a wonderful privilege we have once again to be in your company. Yours truly, Valent Rousseau, and also Pastor Rocky Stevenson, Benoni Bible Church, a pastor from a faraway place, and he's here in studio with us this morning. Uh, Rocky, good morning, my brother. How are you keeping? Good morning, Valent. It's so good to be here and doing very well by God's grace. Yeah, uh, wonderful. It's a jam-packed program we've got. This is the program where we uh, work through God's word, share with you the undiluted word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes uncomfortable, but then again, not man's opinion, God's opinion. This is what we're endeavoring to bring you. Acts seventeen eleven says, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And hierdie program, as jy sikkel met enig iets, Aaron sê te pastoor, maalpa, broer, sister, iemand iets te sê, oor die woord van die Heere, en dit maak nie vir jou sin nie, dan kan jy in hierdie programma, kan jy jou vraag kom vraag. Stuur het dood eenvoudig vir ons, WhatsApp het vir ons, en soos altyd, ons klim in die skrifte in, en dan kyk ons, wat sê die woord van die Heere. You send it to 082, there you have it, 082 657 2729 and uh, if possible, kindly make reference of the scripture that you are unsure of it just makes life a little bit easier here in studio so steer het vir ons 082-657-2729 as jy uitmis op die nummer, nou moet nie bekommer nie ons geet gereeld dier die program en kan jy jou vraag insteer, na skriftierlik 082-657-2729 2729 Ons het ook gebid volgend vir jou en dat die geest van die Heere in my en in jou hart sal werk terwyl jy luister na hier die program. Wil ek vir jou vraag, as jy dood eenvoudig net luister na die program, dat jy vir ons sal bid hier in die atelier, dat die opinies en dit wat ons deel nie mees sy opinie is nie, maar Godse woord en dat dit wat ons moet jou deel, kom ook meer verantwoordelijkheid, want handelinge 17 alweer, onderzoek die skrifte om te kyk of hier die dinge so is, Acts 17 11. Let's start with the Bogos question from Pretoria, he says, my question is on building an altar, is the pulpit, is the pulpit, and there's a, yeah, a slight uh, a wondering about this, because we are known as radio pulpit. He says, here's the pulpit, the altar of God. One has to build with stones and pour oil like it on it, like the Old Testament. What is your advice? What does the Word of God say with regards to the pulpit? And, uh, Rocky, if I may add, isn't the pulpit an outdated concept? Uh, the days of old, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, the church in, in 
Paul, what is it, Stellenbosch, the Grote Kerk, as they would call it, they've got these pulpits that's raised up way up uh, there, and this uh, the minister or reverend, whoever, is looking down on the congregation. The concept of pulpit, where does it come from? And yeah. with regards to Tobogo's question, how are we to uh, to use it? Are we to anoint it with oil? What yeah. advice do we um, give him? Tobogo, thank you for the question. And it really is a thoughtful question regarding the altar in the context of worship. And in the Old Testament, the altar was indeed a very significant symbol of worship and sacrifice. It was a place where people would offer sacrifices to God, would seek forgiveness, would express gratitude, or they would make vows. But in the New Testament, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the way that people approach God changes. The, the focal point and the focus shifted from the physical altar to spiritual worship. And in in many respects, we are to be those living sacrifices, as we see within the scriptures. We ourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we should always be offering up incense as a as a walking altar as such um, in the New Testament. And the, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 13 verse 10, it says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no authority to eat. And yet the altar is really mentioning mentioning the symbolic representation of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a physical structure, but then a, a spiritual reality for the Christian, for the new covenant believer, emphasizing then also the final and the complete sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for humanity. So regarding the pulpit and the question, the pulpit is not like the altar of the Old Testament at all. And that's one of the reasons, even again, why I think something like an altar call is a a problem. There, There is also something that has often plagued Christianity as a false doctrine called replacement theology. And part of what replacement theology did with the pulpit is it said, well, the pulpit's the same thing as the altar. And so therefore you have an altar call and then you call people up to the altar and you must offer your life now on the altar. And um, there's there's no such concept in the New Testament regarding the altar because Jesus tore that when Jesus died on the cross and his body was torn. We remember that 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 temple that 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 stood there in Jerusalem, the holy of holies that was separated by a really thick curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, and we've been brought in. But regarding the pulpit, um, it really stands as something of, it serves as something from which we preach the word of God. Now, during the the Reformation period, 500 years ago, you would have a pulpit would be very much to the side, and the Lord's table would actually be in the center of of the church and then often at times that that lord's the lord's supper table would now be moved out and you've got the band that is in the center of the stage in today's world in a sense you know you've got like your instruments and all the rest now taking center stage i do think that there is a, a time for us to get back to having the pulpit ministry be the central point of the the church ministry and even prayer being a central point of church ministry. But the pulpit really just serves, in my mind, as a podium from which you preach from. I really enjoy the pulpit that I have at Benoni Bible Church. I think it, and it's in the center of the building and really symbolizes, I do think, very much the centrality of the preaching of God's word. Um, but, but, but more than that, you know, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says, preach the word. 
be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. So the, the, the pulpit really just serves as a place from where the word of God is preached. It's not an altar at all. And while it is not the same in the Old Testament as the altar, it does hold that kind of a crucial role within the local church. And it highlights even the importance of the preaching of God's word. But you could use a music stand. I've used a music stand before. You could use a physical pulpit. I don't think it really is about the kind of a um, a platform that you would use. It does also hold some kind of a sway in regard to something like Nehemiah chapter 8 in the Old Testament, where you have Nehemiah, well, you have Ezra busy preaching, and you had those platforms that were raised up amongst the congregation of Israel, yeah. and they would hear the word, and then they would give it to the group that was around them. And there may have also been something of a language element there, and they, they would, I mean, if you thought that that preaching today is long well there it was like half the day that they spent on their feet listening to God's word being preached and it is interesting when you just look at some of these concepts of course there's been a bit of a change and we we have the synagogues that started during the Babylonian captivity after 586 AD and um, from from that is kind of where we get something of our concept of the local church where you have a local church and you have a teaching spot now in the synagogue worship what they would do is the rabbi would actually Actually sit and teach while the rest of the congregation stood. But today we have it often the congregation sits and the pastor stands and preaches. I, I do think there is something to be said of what you mentioned with regard to how high and lofty some of the yeah. pulpits were of past. Now that was a, a something that was necessary because of the need to be able to to actually preach without any speakers and without any amplification. Today we've got such good ampli- amplification. Sadly, today many of our buildings are not built very well for for preaching. I, I just loved actually the the time that I went to visit Claxdor. Acoustics play a role. Yeah, Claxdor yeah. Baptist Church. If you've yeah. ever gone to Claxdor Baptist Church, it was a wonderfully built building, and I think they bought it off from the um, the Inchia Church at some point. And it's this like square structure that I mean, it's got this beautiful pipe organ in it, yeah. and the 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 acoustics are just brilliant because it's been built that way. Today's buildings are built badly. It doesn't have good acoustics because it relies so much on sound. And, and it then, affects congregants. I mean, you get all yeah. the people that come to church that struggle to hear. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that um, if there's any modern building of church buildings, we really ought to give a good thinking to things like acoustics, even things like air inside of it. You look at some of the old architecture, it was brilliant when it yeah. comes to just the airflow. In and they would have these like wind tiles. It's a whole, a whole separate subject. But yeah. um, I do think that we, we need to give thought to somehow the sound and the amplification. All right. And I do think that maybe there was a... Uh, we got to be careful to not worship the preacher or yeah. worship the preaching. I think that would be a, a step too far inside of a congregation. But I do think there's place for the pulpit being center again. First Peter 2 verse 5 says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the end principle. There's no altar in the New Testament. You yourself are part of that living structure of the body of Christ. And we are to be ourselves a living sacrifice to him. Right, Taboho. Trust that makes sense to you. And thank you very much. Very interesting question that you've posted. You've got a question. You're welcome to send it through to us. Stier het gerisdeer 082-657-2020. 
As jy een skrifgedeelte het, leefstijlvraag, wat het ook al mag wees, stuur het dier vir, dier vir ons en dis die program, waar ons dan kyk na daar die vraag en uit die woord van die heren vir jou dan antwoorde gee. We don't claim to have all the answers, uh, but some of them, yeah, we need to take home and go and pray over them and search the scriptures. Rocky burning the midnight candle, so to speak. Rocky, somebody posted a question anonymously, yeah? <clears throat> and it simply says, making the sign of the cross, is it biblical? Burning candles while praying. Uh, we sometimes refer to them as just symbols in the church. Many a dom- denomination, I don't want to p- point to any particular denomination, but is it scriptural? Is the anonymous question here, making the sign of the cross and burning mm. candles while praying. Now, the practice of making the sign of the cross and even burning candles while praying is not explicitly mandated within the scriptures. It's not yeah. something that's actually even spoken about there. While some Christians actually find this to be something of a personal meaning to them yeah. and and seem to find some kind of a significance in the practice of these things, it really is essential to to address these things or look at these things with caution as well as with discernment. You know, making the sign of the cross, while while the sign of the cross can symbolize faith in the triunity of God, and because that's what's done often from the head down and then across the breast, there's that idea of there's the the cross of the crucifixion of Christ, but also there's the idea of I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But as, it's immediately do, it immediately points you to a certain uh, belief system, doesn't mm. it? That, that be, because we would say, oh, oh, uh, those guys, they do yes, it. We we yes. don't do it. So yes. th- that's true for that as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, and I think that um, everything it puts has, you in a camp. It does have like historical connections a, yeah. a lot of the time. Right. But it is then important to also view that this as not magical, as not a mandatory ritual, as not something that is superstition. And the Bible emphasizes that our faith in Christ as our uh, and our relationship with God is not dependent on outward rituals or right. outward gestures, yes. and I think that 's where we need to go with something like this. Right. Is it intrinsically wrong to do that, not necessarily, but yeah. what 's the heart motive when you do do that? Do you think that there 's some kind of a superstitious element that like God's you similar to some people that will wear a cross around their around their neck and they would think, you know, I'm going to have some kind of a protection or that this is a pendant or that this is some kind of a, you know, force field uh, keeping me away from Satan. Then we're starting to delve into the realm of superstition in many respects. And Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9, which is a passage we've used so often on Scriptilic, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. If we start to think that showing the sign of a cross or wearing a cross or doing some other thing, some other ritual, that somehow that makes us okay with God or that somehow protects us before others, then we've, we've, we're sorely mistaken. And then we're no different from those that practice witchcraft in that sense. The burning of candles while praying, I do think that some, th- you know, some of these things are practical things. It used to be that we were in a time of candles, 
and it seems like we're heading to that type of a time again <laughs> with all of our uh, ESCOM candles, issues. Yes. You know, it's like what happened, what, what existed before candles? Well, ESCOM yeah. um, existed before candles. But the burning of candles, oftentimes uh, saints of old would get up early in the morning before the sun had risen. They would light a candle so that they could see what they were reading, if they wanted to read something from the Psalms or if they wanted to read something from the Word of God. And then they would bow in prayer. And yeah. so the candles were something that was, in a sense, practical. But now it's, sometimes when we do things that are practical, similar to what we talked about with the pulpit that was raised up so high at a stage in many churches, uh, sometimes when we do something practical, it then takes over and becomes something that becomes spiritual in that sense. And some people have this superstitious idea that the candles will chase the evil away and chase the light will, you know, that this is symbolic of the light of Christ and the praying uh, intentions. And however, it's crucial again to avoid the belief that the ritual or the the intrinsic, that there's this ritual that has this intrinsic spiritual value or spiritual power, our access to God and our favor comes not from lighting of candles it comes from a personal relationship with jesus christ john 14 verse 16 jesus said i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me we must have christ that is the element that is most necessary but whether or not you light a candle or not maybe you like lighting a candle that's great. You have freedom in Christ with that. But what is the intention of the heart? Yeah. And and if you have some kind of superstitious kind of a view with that, then there's a problem. Then there's no difference from then you know shaking salt over your right shoulder or not walking underneath a ladder or not seeing yeah. a black cat or you know then we we start to go into the realm that is extra biblical mm. and and is actually starting to cause you to have fear. Then you start to think, well, I can't actually uh, pray if I don't light a candle. You know, now I need to do that. I have to have this ritual that happens. It's kind of like I'm busy reading this book at the moment by Ian Bounds on prayer, and it's a great book, and I've been highlighting it, and I've got a specific highlighter that I like. It's a, it's kind of like a, a crayon type of highlighter. It doesn't go through the, to the other page, yeah. and I've run out of my highlighter. So now I've stopped reading the book because I need to buy another highlighter. Yeah. And I think that that's how sometimes people behave with these type of things. Yeah, now yeah. you don't have a candle. Now I don't pray. Now I don't pray. Yeah. Or I don't have my <laughs> prayer closet, so now I can't pray. Or I don't have my prayer book, my prayer journal, so I can't pray. And I think that that's where the problem lies is where we take away that freedom that we have received in Christ in that sense. And uh, Galatians 5 verse 1 says this, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. We've got to be careful that none of our practices start to become something that enslaves us. Yeah. You know, John 4 verse 24 again comes to mind with regard to the lady that was at the well. And Jesus says to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about hand gestures or about candles that we light. It's about this deep walk with Christ. Right. I trust that uh, makes sense. Thank you, Anonymous, for a very, very interesting uh, question. 23 after 11. Skriftuurlik. Ons sal levende geit uit uh, 42 Jakobusstraat, Kilnerpark in Pretoria. En uh, as ek so na die WhatsApp kyk, mag domme mense wat luister en wat uh, deelneem aan die programma. Baie dankie. If we don't get to your question this morning, we will eventually get to your question. Just bear with us. If not today, in some program, we will definitely address your question. Rocky, received a question for somebody that says uh, why is the everlasting gospel that is preached in Revelation 14, 7 maybe you should just read that to us, uh, some people traveling in their cars, 
uh, don't know now what Revelations 14, 7 says. Why is the everlasting gospel that is preached in Revelation 14, 7 different to the gospel we received in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4? Very interesting question. Yeah, what does those yeah. two scriptures say? Yeah, and, and, and just from the outset <clears throat> is that these are different um, in the sense that they, there is a... There, there is something different as you read the, these texts, but what you see is that this is still part of the same broader gospel. But let me explain it as we go. And the, and the distinction between the everlasting gospel that is mentioned in Revelation 14 verse 7, in particular verse 6 actually, but I'll read that to us in a moment as you asked, and the gospel that's outlined in First Corinthians 15, 1 to 4 is a significant theological topic. But let's look at each passage and then we'll compare right. it and okay. then put it together. So Revelation 14 verse 6 to 7 reads as follows. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So what do you see part of his message? Fear God, give God glory. The time is coming to an end. God has promised that the time is coming to an end. And the heavens and the, you know, you must worship him who made the heavens and the earth. That is the eternal gospel. That has been the gospel that has been presented even to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. If they would just obey him, if they would just continue to honor him. So Revelation 14.6, that phrase, that eternal everlasting gospel in a sense, refers to the message that is proclaimed by this angel during the end times. But this is not a new message. This is a message, that's why it's saying it's everlasting. This is something that has been there right from the very beginning. This message calls people to fear God. That's exactly what Proverbs even calls us to do. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God and the knowledge of the Holy One. And, and, and it, it acknowledges his judgment. It acknowledges the worship of him. It worships him as the creator. So it emphasizes reverence for God and then the recognition of his sovereignty, especially in the context now with that angel of eschatological events. The end is drawing near. We're now coming to this end point. But this is not different to what God has already been giving us in his word. This is the same essence in that gospel call. Make right with God. Fear him. Turn to him. So it's crucial to then understand that this gospel has always been intrinsically woven into the fabric of the very existence of the world. It resonates through the very act of creation, echoes in the heavens, you know, like what we see in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's evidenced in more than the, it's evidenced in the existence of us as human beings when we look in the mirror. It speaks like that. It speaks to our conscience, guides our moral decisions, reflects back to, to who God is in our humanity. And so from the moment of creation, the gospel has been silently preached through the awe-inspiring beauty of, na of nature, pointing to the Creator's glory. It's been written in the vastness of the cosmos. It's declared in the, the majesty of who God is even when we look at the stars. It resonates with us in our human soul when we look in the mirror. So no man is without excuse before God, like Romans 1 says, because that gospel has been preached. God has been preaching this gospel all along. 
Additionally, then the gospel speaks through the conscience as well, serving as that moral conscience and that, that moral compass for us, distinguishing between right and wrong. Every human being is able to do this. There's because of this eternal, everlasting gospel. We ought to fear the Lord. We ought to turn away from evil. So that everlasting gospel is not this new revelation that is confined to the end times that only that angel speaks about. Instead, he speaks about the same gospel that has been already there since creation. And then when we think about 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4, listen to what that says. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4 reads as follows. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaim as good news to you, which also you received, in which which also you stand, by which also you were saved. If you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you, as good news, in other words, as gospel, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So here in this passage, the Apostle Paul outlines the very core message of the gospel that he preached. The gospel centers on the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And it emphasizes salvation through faith in Christ's atoning work, which is then the foundation of the Christian faith and the means by which the believer can be reconciled to God. So the distinction between these passages then lies in their context. Revelation 14 verse 6 addresses specific events during the end times, emphasizing in particular the fear of God, his judgments, and worship. And 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 to 4, on the other hand, focuses on the foundational message of salvation through Christ's death and resurrection, which applies to all believers throughout all of history. So it's important then to recognize that while these passages emphasize these different aspects, kind of like the different angle of a, of a diamond in a sense, this is still the same gospel. And you must have the Lord Jesus Christ to be made right with God. But if you really fear God, if you really see him in his sovereignty, if you turn to him, you will then, by essence, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they highlight these different facets of God's message to humanity, which are tailored to specific contexts within the biblical narrative. But this is the same essence or the same gospel. Bless your heart for that. Thank you, Rocky. 082-657-2729. That's the number here in studio. If you want to send your question through, Ikasa said we have to play some music as well. Some interesting questions. Why do Christians have to appear before the judgment seat of God? Somebody else, Ina Matea, that asked a question and says, somebody ask her, why do I have to be here on earth, face all these uh, uh problems and issues, and then, well, end up in hell or end up before God. We're going to weave those two in one. And thank you so much. Somebody else says, why must we have, can, no, here's the question, can we have markets uh, at our church, uh, seeing that Jesus drove people out of the church building? Uh, Interesting questions coming in, but, 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 Ikasa said you have to play music during your program as well. We'd like to adhere to the authorities. Choose Life Youth Gospel Project, a song called Greatly to be Praised. When we come back, 082-657-2729, just giving Rocky a quick uh, chance to uh, uh, wet his lips, and then when we come 
Limbach will answer those questions as well. Ja, ontdek jy lewe saam met 657 AM, die woord van die Heere, the oracles of God brings life, the book, the blueprint for happy living, no matter what you're struggling with. We're talking about God's word. Somebody said the other day, the acronym for Bible is basic instruction before leaving the earth. Hmm? Uh, if you're struggling with things this morning, well, this is the program where you can post your questions. Uh, send it through to us, 082-657-2729. Rocky, we got a question from Matthijs Swanepoel that says, Matthijs, I'm just going to tackle one of the questions. You've forwarded more than one question. So I'm just going to tackle one of the questions and tie it together with another listener, Ina Matthijs, that uh, also asked the question, uh, you basically said, Waarvoor moet ons voor Jesus Christus' rechterstoel verskyn? 2 Corinthians 5.10 You're making reference of that. Why do we have, as Christians, appear before the judgment seat of God? And then Ina Matia that asked a question here this morning that says, Well, somebody came up to me and asked me, I didn't have to be here on earth. And now I get judged. We're battling on a daily basis. We're struggling. And there's even a possibility that I could go to hell. I never asked to be here. She said, I didn't know what to answer this person. I just said, well, God don't operate the way we do. But what does the Bible have to say with regards to that? So if you somewhere along the line are saved, then the question, why do I have to appear before the judgment seat of God? Can we put those two together, or is it two separate issues? How are we to understand God's yeah, word, we, Rocky? We, we can um, definitely try to to put them together. I do think that that second question really comes from the pride of mankind that says, well, I needed to be asked permission. To and it's a, logical, world, yeah. it's a logical fallacy, because how could you be asked permission whether or not you wanted to come to the earth if you had not yet been made. Yes. So you'd have to be made it's to be, to be yeah. asked, yeah. would you like to be made? And um, and in a sense, that, that whole concept just falls flat on an, on itself. Yeah. Um, the, the very reason that we were made is because of the love of God. Yeah. And because of his mercy towards us, he does give us that opportunity to respond to him in his love towards us. And we can either have, in a sense, a a hell on earth and a hell to go to, or we can have a heaven on earth because we have Christ and a heaven to go to. Um, you know, we either are, you know, born once and, and die, die once in that sense, or we born once and die twice. Yeah. Um, and I'm getting myself confused, but, um, but the point is that, that, you know, we, we have been created for the purpose of God being glorified but the very issue of a question like that points towards, I need to be glorified. Oh, I right. need to receive this. Somebody should have asked me, God should have bowed down to me before I bow down to God in that sense. So the Bible says we are coming as sinners into this world. We come into this world lost. Yes. All right. Now God in his infinite mercy has made a way out for us. For sure. And and, and you, you refer to man's pride and says, well, who are we? puny humans to mm. say to God you need my permission to put me in this world, you need my permission to tell me whether I'm a boy or a girl gender fluidity, that's a whole topic discussion for another day but God doesn't need our permission no, now we're in this world we accept him as Lord and Savior mm. because we need to be saved, man need to realize it 
and then we end up before the judgment seat of God, Second Corinthians 5.10. Yeah, yeah. How does that work? And, um, and I think that this is something that I'm, I'm actually, when I've been prepping for next week, Tuesday's uh, Theology Tuesday, I'm going to be talking a little bit there about imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. And I do think that there's a bit of a confusion today between the two. And the one speaks of our continual walk with Christ and our... You know, once you've got that foundation that is on Christ, what are you building on that foundation? And yeah. I think that's part of where we see the judgment seat of Christ. So so Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this verse refers then to the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will give a account. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment that unbelievers appear before. This is the the kind of judgment that we actually see in Psalm 1 where the the, the unrighteous do not appear before this kind of a throne yeah. um, that the believers do. They don't stand in, the, in that congregation yeah. one day. There's a congregation that we will stand before and we will give an account to the Lord Jesus of what did we do with this marvelous salvation that he had provided us with. And we will receive reward for that which we build upon the foundation that is of costly um, kind of artifact. And, and that which we build upon it that is hay or stubble or that which burns up, it will be tested as such by, by fire in that way as what we see there. And we will suffer loss for that. But it's important to note that this judgment is not about salvation as believers are already saved through faith in Christ. That's the whole reason you're able to come to this this. Um, you know, this judgment seat of Christ. Those that are unbelievers never come before the judgment seat of Christ. They go before the great white throne judgment. But it's a judgment of believers' works and their motives. What's our works like? What's our motives like? And believers will be rewarded based on the quality of their deeds, whether they were done with a pure motive and in alignment with God's will, or if it was done with a selfish motive or misguided. And so this judgment then underscores the significance of living a life that glorifies God and aligns with God's purposes. Are you obeying Jesus or are you not obeying Jesus? It serves as a motivation really for believers to serve God faithfully and to pursue righteousness because that's what we commanded towards. And the emphasis is then on the character of the deeds and the heart that is behind the deeds, highlighting then the importance of genuine transformed living within the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that this is underestimated and underspoken about even uh, much in our in our day. We ignore this topic because it often means that we now need to leave some of those pet sins that we have. But yet Christ has died to make us free from all of this so that we might live a life that is glorifying to him. And the Christian ought to take with open hands this marvelous grace that Jesus has purchased for us, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as Galatians 5 even teaches us, and we ought to live this way. We ought to live in such a way that our trees are bearing so much fruit that is in alignment with repentance so that we bend low and that the nations even can come and eat of that fruit and enjoy this life that has been transformed by Christ. And I do fear that many a times we have bought into something like a, um, 
a fatalism, like a theistic fatalism where, well, God is sovereign and we have a wrong view of the sovereignty of God. And because God is sovereign, he just, you know, he'll do what he wants to do. And therefore, well, I'm so grateful that I'm saved. I can just be a blob being saved. And I don't pick up my cross. I rather embrace the couch and I'm just going to be lazy. I don't deny myself. I rather appease myself. And instead of following Jesus, I want Jesus to follow me. And I think that there's a many people that will appear one day if indeed they are saved that they will that's the only type of people that will be before this judgment seat of jesus and there's many that will appear that day and that will have regrets i think that the christian ought to be spurred onward by the work of the holy spirit inside of them to live without any regrets to fully obey the voice of the lord jesus christ and to do that which is pleasing to god then we will receive a crown and i think that the christian should live for that crown so that they would lay that crown down before the feet of the Lord Jesus, that they will have something. You, you know, you can't take anything of this earth with you, but what you can receive from him there is a reward for the way that you've lived your life here. And, and I don't know about the, the listener, but I know that for me and I know for you, Vainand, we want to live in such a way that we receive that commendation Very from the so. Lord, yes. where he looks at us and he says, well done, my good and my faithful servant. That's something that you receive. That commendation is at the judgment seat of Christ. Have we lived as good and faithful slaves? Yeah. You know, that's those three kind Bond of highlights. Servant. Yes, yeah. you know, um, and that's what we want to hear. I, I don't think you want to hear, well, you were bad, you were not faithful, and you actually behaved as though I was meant to be your slave. You said something very <laughs> profound. You spoke about the the uh, revelation of your motives. Yes. Just even the motives of our hearts, the agendas behind the scenes that we think nobody knows about, that will be exposed on that day for us as Christians. Something to think about. Bless your heart. Thank you so much, Matthijs. And also, Ina, for those questions. Hope that makes sense. The pride of man. And yes, there will be a day that your motives will be exposed. Jasmine, thank you so much for your questions. She says, I'd like to know, can churches host market days? <laughs> referring to John 2 and verse 12 to 22. It's quite a, a long passage where Jesus told the people to take their doves and not to turn it into a marketplace. Uh, in fact, I think the year itself sweeps at the mark down. I understand there's more to the scripture regarding uh, the death of Jesus. But uh, yeah, uh, what does the word of God say? Yeah, Rocky, um, what do we answer? This I have my own very strong feelings on these things, which I believe are biblically motivated. A local church does have the right to biblically choose itself what it will do. So there is the autonomy of the local church where that local eldership is responsible for what that local church does. Um, where, where I believe that this is wrong is that the New Testament church is to run on the grace giving of its members the kind of giving that is given generously and given with rejoicing in the heart and that is not under compulsion but is given uh, willingly and has been decided upon as an act of worship, whereas many churches now these days seem to even run off of some uh, such market days. And then you have to go and buy Auntie, um, I don't know, I'm just going to use a random name, Auntie um, Hester's, Auntie Hester's yeah. Cook Sisters. Yeah. And you have to buy them at double the price of what you would pay for them inside of the shop, and they're half as nice as the one that you bought in the shop. Uh, but now you've got to smile and grin and bear it 
and um, enjoy this because now sister so-and-so made this thing. And it's going for a good cause. And now it goes to a good cause, so now you must donate like that. That's not biblical at all. We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. We actually never see that in the worship at all. What we see in Acts 2 is that they would sell their possessions and they would give to those that were needy and there was a generosity amongst the church. And so I don't believe that this is biblical in in one bit. Even church raffle days and that type of a thing, um, what you should give is not not under compulsion. I've even told our church at Benoni Bible Church, and this is kind of just a bit of a funny uh, testimony in a sense. I even in the sermon just said, you know, you never thought you'd hear a pastor saying to you, don't give, but don't give if you don't have the heart to give. God doesn't need that at all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If you don't want to give, don't give. And there's no such thing even in the New Testament of the tithe. That is an Old Testament principle that was taken from a theocratic, um, it was meant to be a, uh, let's say, a a theocracy in the Old Testament. We're now a Christocracy under Christ as the New Testament, but that theocracy had more or less 23.5% of their giving was given towards this to actually maintain the government of their day, which was the Levites. And so there's a misunderstanding completely regarding these things. Grace giving is rooted in the concept of Everything that I am belongs to Christ, and everything I have belongs to Christ, and therefore I will use everything that I am and everything that I have to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where grace giving is rooted, and then from that you decide, I'm going to give this, and you give it joyfully because God loves a joyful and a cheerful giver. And that's the way that the local church ought to be sustained. But many a times we've seen local churches that are sustained in very extra-biblical ways. So my my view, and I believe the biblical view, is that you should not have market days at, at a local church. We don't do any of that, even at Benoni. And I praise God for a leadership that has followed me with that. At Benoni Bible Church, just as a means of practical illustration, we actually budget for things like hospitality. We don't even charge for things like burivorce rolls if you come into a work day at the church we don't make you pay to come and work we give you that food and it's, and it's part of our budget as a congregation and the whole church knows when we have fellowship Sundays or when we have fellowship Fridays we have family fellowships once a month and that is provided for by the church yes there's times where we have some that will bring puddings or bring uh, desserts or bring some of the food along but but it's not something that's under compulsion and it's not something that's sold to you and, and I think that that's where we need to be careful. However, we do have a book table at Benoni Bible Church. And here's where some of that freedom, I do think, comes in Christ. That book table is actually consignment stock from Augustine Book Room. And we don't make a cent off of that. That is something that they buy it at the cost price of what Augustine runs that with. And Augustine runs with, a, they do it with a ministry mindset where they're basically just covering their costs. So that gets sold, but we don't even handle the money. So that's something that's done via EFT to Augustine Bookroom directly. And so what I'm saying is that a local church does have that, that autonomy to act freely within the confines of that local eldership, that local leadership. And I do think that we should pray for wisdom amongst uh, local churches and wisdom amongst the eldership within local churches. Uh, But I don't believe that it is biblical for churches to be hosting market days. Right. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for that question, Rocky. Time does not uh, permit us to... There's some interesting long questions coming in. This one simply says, Lilani, bless your heart. So say 1 Corinthians 14, 34, 35. The Bible speaks about women who should be silent. 
different in church service. But in today's church, women are pastors, worship leaders, etc. Is this scripture more culturally to the Jews, or is it a biblical concept? What do we answer? Yeah, um, just I guess in short, because now we we don't have a, a huge amount of time left, the biblical concept is that that women are not to have authority over men. And we can see that in First Timothy chapter 2 as well. And what I would recommend is that um, I, I've recently been preaching through First Timothy 2. So if you're wanting to look a little bit further into it, you can go and look at our uh, YouTube channel channel at Benoni Bible Church, and we have done recently a sermon on First Timothy 2. I, I do believe the biblical role of leadership when it comes to elders and deacons within a congregation is to be male in that sense, and that goes back all the way to creation. So it transcends even the culture of Paul's day. There was obviously some issues in Paul's day in regard to Corinth as well in the, the worship of Diana and the worship of false goddesses and there were so so there were some elements of cultural element but we do see that the order of God from the beginning of creation was that man was created first and then woman was created for man to help man and they are created equal in the sight of God yet different in their in the in their roles and so when it comes to a worshiping church um, we are we do see that the biblical role is is that women are not to be teaching and having authority over men right uh, thank you for that uh, question and uh very interesting questions that are coming in this morning. Um, Rocky, here's a question. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep it anonymous. It says, what about unbelievers? The Bible says we are not to eat or have fellowship with people who live in sin. And then this person says, well, any sin for that matter. That's how I understand the scriptures. What are we to do? Uh, not even friends with them. Yeah. Uh, is is there a way? Is there a short answer? What does the Bible say? Yes. Um, so so there in particular, it's referring to what we find in John's epistles. Um, I'm actually trying to remember as best as I can what which epistle of John. I believe it was First John that talks about this, and it was specifically talking about those that were holding to a false doctrine and those that were professing to be believers but actually were not believers those that actually held to um, an early form of gnosticism where they actually did not believe that jesus came literally in the flesh that he came just in the spirit and that he was not flesh and so what 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 is command in regard to not even greeting them by the hand not even eating with them is specific in regard to those that say that they are christians but actually are not Christians. And so therefore you don't give any assent to their false understanding and their view that actually, well, I'm a Christian. Where somebody says, I'm a Christian, but they're actually living in unrepentant sin, then that command would be to to come in line with that. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11 is another place where he says, but I am am writing to you, not to associate with anyone who is professing to be a brother or sister and yet is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a ver- a verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Now, the, the, the command there again is exactly what we see from what I've mentioned with John. So there in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, he's saying anybody that says I'm a believer so, but then he says, just before this, uh, in verse 10, he says, I did not at 
all mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the greedy or the swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to get out of the world. So Paul makes a distinction, and this is, the, I believe, the answer to this question. The distinction in the Bible is when somebody says, I am a believer, but they live just like the rest of the world lives. Yeah. That's a person that you're not to greet, not to eat with, not to etc. Now, that's also somebody that's likely been church disciplined, somebody that's been put out of the church, somebody that has come and said, I believe in Jesus, but their life is not a life that no is fruit. marked by repentance and there's no fruit in that yeah. person. Now, you don't want to come and make that person believe that they're a believer by your association with them. You are commanded not to associate with that individual, not to even let them think that they're somehow a believer in that sense. But when it comes to everybody in the world, of course everybody in the world is in their sin. We can't just disassociate with everybody in the world. We need to evangelize the world. We need to give them the gospel. So I hope that helps with the, with the question. Uh, Rocky, thank you so much. Uh, time has caught up with us. Three minutes to 12. At 12 o'clock, we'll be bringing you the latest news. Somebody wants to write you an email, get in touch with you. So many questions that came in this morning that we didn't have a chance to tackle. We'll uh, make notes of that uh, and uh, in other programs, uh, tackle them here on scriptural. Rocky, somebody want to be in touch with you? How do they get hold of you? You're welcome to get hold of me at pastor at benonibiblechurch.co.za. Pastor at benonibiblechurch.co.za. It's just one problem with listening to a program like this. You have to go search the scriptures now. That's not necessarily a problem. But uh, some people would say, yeah, but Rocky said, Vainan said, no, we're sharing God's word with you. So Acts 17, 11 says to go and search the scriptures to make sure if these things are so. Do uh, join us next week, God willing, if the Lord tarries between uh, 11 and 12 for yet another edition of Scriptural. Till next time, keep well and God bless you. Looking forward to next week already. Shay Delan taking us to 12 o'clock. A song called Wonderful Days.